pray for me this week. I'm going to be preaching three sermons and then sitting on a current issues panel discussion in Perrysville, Ohio for a young adults conference retreat. People will be flying in from all over the country for a Bible intensive, so I'd like to have your prayers for that. If you wouldn't mind just praying for me Thursday, starting Thursday of this week, um, would really appreciate your prayers that way so that God's word would be rightly divided and uh, young leaders would be discipled in the faith and would, would be a great blessing to their churches uh, back home. I'd like to ask you to turn with me to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Now, while you're turning there, I want to tell you that I want to commend two very little books to you today that have helped me in preparation for this sermon. Uh, the first one, is a little book by a pastor named Timothy Keller, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, The Path to True Christian Joy. Very small little book. I want to commend it to you. Um, the Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. And also, more to the point with today's main point, What Happens When I Die by Marcus Nodder. He's a preacher in the UK. And uh, it's What Happens When I Die and other questions about heaven, hell, and the life to come. And the table of contents is, is helpful because we won't cover all of these uh, aspects today. But uh, should we pray for the dead? Are ghosts real? Cremation or burial? Souls sleep or with the Lord? Are there rewards in heaven? Will we recognize loved ones after we die? What is the soul or spirit? And will we see our pets again? So he tries to tackle all those topics from a biblical and theological perspective uh, beyond the scope of what I'm going to be able to do today. Uh, what Happens When I Die by Marcus Nodder, the single best little bitty resource I've seen on it, little blue book. So if you're interested in that, you might try to pick that up. Again, What Happens When I Die by Marcus uh, Nodder. So that is our main point today, and it's not going to be hard to see when we read the text here in a moment. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 10 is clearly about contemplating death. Uh, didn't plan it this way because I engage in consecutive exposition, walking through a book of the Bible and preaching verse by verse. But it did come about that this is in proximity to a, a very big holiday in the West, right? Uh, coming up here where death is, I, I don't know if celebrated is the right word, but it's, it's certainly uh, visualized in people's yards and, and with the things they post on social media and the costumes that people wear. So it is timely, I think, in that way to contemplate or think about death uh, because of the holiday that's coming up. It's not coincidental that our holiday of Reformation comes up right around the same time, November 1st, as the holiday that is called Halloween. So the Reformation thought a lot about death, uh, the Reformation beginning in earnest in the 1500s and really continuing to today. Uh, Reformation, getting back to biblical doctrine. Uh, you have to think a lot about death. The Bible talks a lot about death. Uh, it's not something that we could hide or place over in the recesses of life through medical technology and expensive institutions for care until just the last 30 or 40 years have we even been able to, to put the topic off. I'll be talking about the spiritual side of death, so from the onset, let me offer a comment about the physical side of death. If you just asked me my opinion, like what would I want if I were to die, uh, I will die, but if I were to die relatively soon, I would prefer a simple burial within 48 hours of less or less, um, 
I, I'm not for cremation for myself because I like for my loved ones, including all of you, to see the body buried to symbolize the body being resurrected. And so that's just the physical side of things I would share with you. Uh, for me personally, within 48 hours, I'm still working through some of the legal ramifications of that. I've been doing some studying on that, but simple burial box, um, and I would like to be buried within 48 hours, or it may be 24 in Indiana. I'm not sure it's a state-to-state thing as I understand it, but a quick burial for the sake of being able to abide within laws without having to go through the extensive process of the funerary arrangement. The other thing you can do for physical aspects of death is meet with your local mortician and talk to them and do advanced planning, which is always a wise thing to do. And it is my preference for the sake of gospel humility that we are buried as Christ was buried, ensuring certain hope of the resurrection. And uh, so, so there's that. But at any rate, that's just me and how I've kind of wrestled through these things to this point in my life. I uh, certainly have an air of humility about that. Glad to talk to you about that. Today, I want to preach, though, about this, the spiritual side of preparing for death. And I want to give uh, three broad over, overview statements that hopefully help you follow along with this text that we're about to read and think about together. So the first one is thinking biblically about death. It's the first one. And it's going to be verses 1 through 5 of chapter 5, thinking biblically about death. And then the the second point is motivations for living in light of death. So what are your motivations for life in light of death? So the first one is going to be verses 1 to 5, thinking rightly about death. second thing we're going to look at is motivations for life in light of death. And that's going to be verses 5 through 9. And then finally, verse 10, standing alone, confidence for eternal life with Christ after your death. So to put it very briefly, thinking rightly about death, number one, living rightly in light of death, number two, and confidence for eternal life, number three. So thinking, living, and then finally confidence. And the word motivations is going to be important in that second point because our motivational structure of our heart is what causes us to act and live the way that we do. So first things first, thinking rightly about death after we read the text by itself to begin with. So listen to verses 1 through 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed, by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Now verse 6. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. May God bless the reading of His Word and administer grace unto all who hear. Now, we want to take it on its part. So verses 1 to 5 lists a series of metaphors. Look back down at the text that you just read on your device or, or perhaps on the screen. It describes our earthly existence 
in light of a tent, our earthly home in light of a tent, and see chapter 5, verse 1. Lots of metaphors would come up with tents. The author of Corinthians, the Apostle Paul, was vocationally a tent maker as well as a pastor. And so as a tent maker and pastor, he would have understood the temporary and sometimes semi-permanent housing that was a tent. These were not uh, just simply recreational tents. These would have been truly all the shelter that many people would have had. And so he was a tent-making pastor, and he writes to the Corinthians with experience in what a tent is. So he describes, using a metaphor to try to help us think rightly about death, he describes your body as an earthen tent or as as a tent. And he says here, when this tent is destroyed, verse 1, you have a building, and that building comes from God. And he articulates this eternal building from God as he's speaking to believers, not not to non-believers, but to believers. He says that you have a building from God and that it is a house not made with hands. So it's not humanly made. It's a house made by God. And it is an eternal house in the heavens. And so we're thinking rightly here, more rightly, about death whenever we think about what's going to happen to this tent and what God ensures or guarantees in eternal life for the believer. Verse 2, again, just thinking about this a little bit more deeply. For in this tent, in this body, we groan. And who would like to say amen to that? Or maybe you just say, oh me, because we do groan, right? I mean, we groan. And there is times when we can't even put words to our pain our utterances are groans. It's not, not just when we're physically in pain. Yes, we groan in physical pain, but sometimes it's emotional pain. Mental pain is to the point that we can, we can hardly put it to words. There were more true words spoken that than in this tent we groan. What a, what a great indicative statement. We are groaners. Longing to be put in our heavenly dwelling. Well, that, that is a, a step, isn't it? We groan in this body, but, but then over time as believers, we need to be matured to the point to where we express a longing to be put in that heavenly dwelling. My mother used to sing a, a song, I've got more to go to heaven for than I had yesterday. And it was a song she'd sing, kind of a uh, country western type tune put to gospel uh, words. And I think that's true. As we live our lives longer and longer, we, we, have, we seem to have more uh, on the other side than we do here, except for the fact that we have the local church that's eternal, that Jesus laid down his life for. And so we have the eternal church, uh, but we also have a local church here where the kingdom of heaven has come down and where glory has filled our souls and where we here get to live out our faith for other people to see. And we, we live as living witnesses. And so there is a purpose to this life, but physically speaking and simply speaking, we groan and we long for a heavenly dwelling. It says here, a conditional statement, verse 3, if indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. So what does that mean? Verse 4 helps us with that. While we're still in this tent, we groan being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed. And so the point of this is it's almost like clothes that are wearing out, and you're going to get to put something on over it that's real nice. You're going to put something on over it that's really nice. So uh, that's kind of the imagery of what each, the eternal body is going to be like, that this is, this is going to be a recognizable tent, probably in its prime of life, in eternal life, not, not in a dilapidated state, I wouldn't think, and that you're going to get fully clothed in heaven. But truly, you believe that by faith, because we, we don't see by sight what this body is going to look like 
in eternity right now? Well, we do as we look to Jesus as our prototype, right? I mean, Jesus rose from the dead. And when we read with visual imagery in the Gospels about Jesus's post-resurrection experiences, we get a sense of what his 30, 33-year-old body might have looked like, what it might have been like to be in the presence of Jesus in that state. And that's 1 Corinthians 15 says that's the prototype with death being swallowed up by victory. That's the prototype for our eternal lives, that we will have resurrected bodies in the final analysis of things. Now, verse 4 continues, we're further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. So what is temporary may be swallowed up by eternal life, further clothed. And then we get to a really serious God statement in verse number 5. Look at that verse 5 with me closely. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So the Spirit doesn't come and flee. The Spirit is a guarantee. That's important for us when we have doubts about our salvation and whenever we are sensitive in our souls and we're looking to ourselves for confirmation. The Spirit doesn't come and flee. The Spirit is given to us as a guarantee. So it is God that has prepared us for this very thing. And so even with the warnings of Scripture like verse 3, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked, come with the comforts of Scripture, but we would be further clothed. Death is swallowed up by life. God gives us himself as a guarantee. And so verses 1 to 5 help us think rightly about death by using a series of metaphors, mainly the metaphor of the tent, also a metaphor of clothes. And all metaphors break down, but they're helpful if used for their intended purpose. Metaphor of tent, of clothes, thinking about home. Thinking about home, where you probably keep your clothes, your possessions, as in your home, in order to be dressed. And so this is the using very real-life metaphoric language to teach you something about God and His guarantee to you as a believer. You have the Spirit as a guarantee. God has prepared us for this very thing. And all of life, it might be said, is lived in light of preparation for death. And so our first point, as we kind of draw it to a close, is your need to think rightly, to think godly, to think biblically about death. Not to press it to the recesses of imagination, but to live in light of death. Some of the most memorable and inspiring Christians in the history of the church, have they lived daily and testify to it in their writings of the awareness of their own mortality, of death. And so I think that we do well to do that also. So think rightly about death. Secondly, think about your motivations for how you live your life. Live in light of death is how I stated it from the onset. Your motivations for life in light of death. I want you to look now at verse 9. Jump ahead to verse 9. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. Well, who is it that we are trying to please? In light of this, we're trying to please the Lord. We're trying to please God. That's, the, that's what the meaning of that verse is. That's who Him is, is the Lord. We make it our aim to please the Lord. And there's a mouthful of truth in that simple little phrase. And I might just press the question, turn it into a question, and press it back on you. Who do you aim to please? Who do you aim to please? What is the motivation from your heart for how you live your life? Not just what you do but why you do it. Who, or we might say differently, 
whom do you aim to please? I want to offer a couple of of possible answers to that question. There's not that many of them. Um, One might be to please man or man, person, self, woman, man. I want to please me. And I think that that would look something like I want control. I want power. I want meaning to existence by virtue of my identity as a powerful person. That would be seeking to please Matt in this case, or just hold a mirror up, seeking to please you. I think it's possible that you could seek to please men, plural, people, mankind. In that case, your motivation would not be so much your own sense of power and decision-making based on a sense of power, but also Or rather, instead of that, this would be a sense of making decisions based on the approval, keyword approval, of other people. And so you would be making decisions based on the desire to please other people. As two of what I'm going to say might be three possible, uh, sure there could be more, but three possible motivations for how you make decisions. Now notice, I didn't say anything about the decisions you make. A person who is motivated by power, pleasing me and me only, could appear to be very sympathetic to another human being. Now, their, their reason for doing that would not be altogether, all, it would not be altogether sincere, but it would be looking the same as someone that maybe really snuggling up to somebody and being kind to somebody because they just want to please them. They just can't stand not to be, not to be uh, having their approval in that way. So pleasing people can be for one of those first two motives, whether it's your own sense of power, control of situations, or because of approval. The Bible says in Galatians chapter 1, verse 10, that the Apostle Paul actually is writing very vivaciously and, and directly to the church at Galatia, and he says, if I were still trying to please people, I wouldn't be a servant of the Lord. So I want to tell you, these first two motivations, these aims, they're not Christianly mature motivations. We all slip into them in our sin conditions, but we want to be aware of them, and we want to know that making decisions based on controlling environments or making decisions based on sheerly the approval of the people around us are not Christianly motivations. Our motive needs to be to please the Lord. And Paul says that that there's no middle ground with that, that either if I were still trying to please people, whether it was for control, I think, or for approval, I wouldn't at the same time be a servant of the Lord. So as servants of the Lord, what does it mean then to develop the motivation of aiming to please the Lord? Let's look back at the text and see kind of what this looks like and maybe draw out some some applications there. So our first point, just to kind of circle the wagons, was thinking rightly about death. And now I'm talking about living rightly in light of death, and especially the motivations of your heart. Is it power? Is it approval? Is it to please the Lord? It can be difficult to discern, by the way. Not easy to to delineate between the motivations of our heart. I I would argue we need one another to kind of know ourselves, because our tendencies are not easy to know. We're we're self-deceived. Kierkegaard wrote well about this. Listen to verse uh, 6, 7, and 8. So we are always of good courage. Uh, Some translations say confidence. That's helpful. Confidence is the range of meaning there. We're of good confidence, good courage. And we know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. While we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. Verse 7 picks up on a Galatians 5 type phrase. We walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good 
courage, good confidence, so that forms an inclusion there between verses 6 and 8. We're of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Verse 9, so whether we are at home or away, either way, whether we're here or there, whether we're still in this earthen tent or we've been given a provisional body until we get our glorified body in the final resurrection. Either way, whether we're here or we're there, what is our aim? What's our motivation? We make it our ambition, our aim to do what? To please the Lord. And that is the ethical or behavioral application of this sermon for us is making it our aim to please the Lord. Now, what that looks like could be different, just different as there is number of people in this room. Could that be in applications? What does it mean for you to please the Lord? It, it's subtle, isn't it? Because we could do the same thing, but for different reasons, and one of us could be pleasing the Lord, and the other one not. Uh, look at Ananias and Sapphira in Acts to see an example of that. One person uh, gives sacrificially, pleases the Lord. The other one does it, gives sacrificially, but not really. They give from a poor motivation. And in light of that, they face the swift judgment of the Lord. So why do I do what I do? This is a true uh, text of maturity in its challenge. Look back at verses uh, 6 and 8, 6 through 8, and then also verse 9. I want to draw some parallels. It says we are of good confidence, of course, as believers, good courage. It says in verse 6, at home in the body is different than away from the Lord. Verse 7, by faith in the body, by sight with the Lord. Right? Verse 8, in the body versus with the Lord which he now says, at home. We would rather be at home. And so verse 9 then, not away from the body, versus at home, verse 9a. And what, when we're looking at this, this distinction, this dichotomy, this difference between here and there, at home in the body, away from the Lord. Walk by faith, then by sight. In the body now, with the Lord, at home, would rather be then, verse 8. While we're not away from the body, then we're not at home with the Lord, verse 9. What are, we, what are we getting at here? Well, clearly, what we're getting at, once we kind of piece that out and put it together, is where is home? What does it mean to be at home? And it is a measure of faith, but now you're people of faith. But it is a measure of faith to have a preference to be at home instead of at home. I could be flipping about that and just be like, yeah, well, yeah, take me away from my family. That sounds great. No, that's not great. And death is not to be celebrated. Remember the origin of death. What causes us to die east of Eden? It's sin. So death, and in, in, in this has application for the upcoming holiday, death is not to be celebrated. It's not to be celebrated. Death is the unfortunate ramification for the sinfulness of humanity. We were not made to die. But I'm not talking to you today primarily about your first death. No, when we talk about our first death, I'm trying to get you to avoid the second one. And this is a word for unbelievers. The way to avoid the second death is to embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ in this life. That's the way to avoid the second death, is to embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ in this life, right now, in this tent. 
And the second death is far, far more to be feared than the first. It's appointed for man once to die and then to face the judgment. Each of us will die. It's the second death that is to be feared. The death where you don't really die, you have eternal existence. It's just not any kind of living because it's apart from the God that you hated and rejected and refused to yield to while in this tent. So I'm preaching the gospel to you, unbeliever, this morning. I'm saying to you, receive Christ. Know the joy of that guaranteed spirit deposit inside of you for eternal life. Know that joy. Know the joy of eternal life with Christ. And know it by virtue of the confidence that we have in this life, even as we change the way we live because of death. One theologian said it this way. If I don't botch it, I'll try to remember how to say it to you. He said that it's better, it's, it's right to be born twice so you only die once instead of dying twice and only being born once. He's picking up on the metaphor of, did I get that wrong? Did I get it right? I got it right that time? Okay, I forget, I forget who said it. Somebody in here will know and they'll tell us and, and put it on our social media page or something so we know who said that because I forgot which theologian said it. But it's better to be born twice. That's picking up on the John metaphor to be born again. It's better to be born twice and die once and not have to fear the second death than to just be physically born once, never be born again, and then die twice. It's the second death. And John's literature really carries that forward. I'm going to point us to Marcus Nodder's little book, What Happens When I Die, for just a moment, because he, in one of his chapters, he talks through an exposition of John's writings on this subject from Revelation chapter 20, where it begins in chapter 20, verse 11. He says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who is seated on it. The passage ends with, The lake of fire is the second death, the second death, Anyone whose name is not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. So the second death, so that's where born twice, born again, unbeliever, come to faith in Christ to be born again. That's what that is. And then you only die once. So contemplating death rightly causes us to then live rightly because we have that eternal life coming to us for sure rightly. So our aim is to please him in this body. Listen to what Nodder says as he's expositing John's writings about this point in time when we will face judgment. He talks about the courtroom. He says in verse 11 of Revelation 20, the heavenliest scene appears to be a courtroom, but with some unusual features. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it, the death and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. The first thing that catches John's eye is a huge white throne and when in his vision of a courtroom. He talks about the accused. It looks as if John sees not just God on his throne, but those who are standing before him. And what a sight it is, because Revelation chapter 20, verse 12 says, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, the great white throne judgment. Picture that. Every person who has ever lived standing before the enormous white throne. Picture that. Every person who has ever lived standing before the enormous white throne, billions of people, great and small, rich and poor, the powerful and the oppressed, the great sprawling mass of humanity standing before their creator. Well, what an inspiring scene to picture in your mind's eye. 
It says in verse 13 of Revelation 20, this is John's vision of the second death. At sea, the sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. So it doesn't matter how many people died, everyone will be raised to life for this end-time court appearance. It doesn't matter whether they were buried or cremated or lost at sea, all will be raised. This idea of a final resurrection of all people is not just something we find in the last book of the Bible. We see it in the Old Testament in Daniel, and we see it also in the book of Acts and others of John's writings as well. And so this is really going to happen. History isn't going to run endlessly around in circles. We're heading toward a, a, a final day of reckoning. And Nodder describes the trial as he's exposing this text. It's a very helpful imagery. Listen to how he writes about this. Courtroom dramas make for good television viewing, but it's not quite so entertaining to find yourself featuring in one, especially if you're the defendant. And he says this, each of us will be on trial before the throne of God who made us. And he quotes Revelation 20, and I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were open. Another book was open, which was the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. And so in John's vision, in Revelation 20, there's two sets of books. And here's how Nader writes about them. I'm going to read verbatim now. Number one, the book of deeds. First, the book of deeds. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. And each person was judged according to what they had done. And he writes, The other day my wife found our two-year-old son in the living room, his trousers soaked through, standing in a pool of pee-pee. Our attempts at potty training looked rather pathetic. And my wife asked him, have you peed your pants? And he looked at her without missing a beat and replied, no, daddy did it. <laughs> and he argues, you don't have to teach a two-year-old to pass the buck. And as adults, we instinctively do the same when confronted with wrong in our lives. But in these books is recorded everything we've ever done. And we must bear in mind that this is a part of the Bible which uses symbolism, that is revelation, to represent reality. The books symbolize God's memory in which absolutely nothing is missing. Perhaps if God had given us, had given us this vision today rather than the first century, instead of books, he might have pictured that record as a video of your life. Imagine that being projected onto a huge screen on that last day with all the people you've ever known in this life watching with you. What rating do you think your film would be given by the censors? And all our secrets, all those things which we've now long forgotten, there would be so much of which we would be ashamed. If the video was posted on your social media page, how many friends would you have this time next week? In TV detective shows, Nader writes, a recurring challenge is the need to get enough evidence to prove someone's guilt. Sometimes a case collapses because there's not enough evidence. But if the charge at the final judgment is failing to love God and your neighbor as God commands, how long would it take to establish your guilt? How long would the film need to run before we'd say, okay, spare us the rest, I plead guilty. Guilty is charged. The trial would be totally just and fair because all the evidence will be there. There will be no rough justice because judgment will not be based on reputation or appearance or family connections. And God knows all the facts. He knows it all. Not only what happened, but what was in your hearts. My heart, our hearts. He knows it all. He knows all the circumstances and mitigating factors in full. And unlike us, his judgments are based on knowing all the facts in intimate detail. Think of Romans 2. God will give to each person according to what he has done. 
Sometimes people th- say things like, I'm basically a good person, or I'm a lot better than many others. But based on such a judgment, who could possibly walk away from that court as a free man or a free woman? Answer? No one. And so he writes about the book of deeds. But then he writes about the book of life, expositing John's writings again. And he says, but wonderfully, verse 12 of Revelation 20 says this, another book was opened up, which is the book of life. This book comes up six times in Revelation. In 21, verse 27, it's called the Lamb's book of life. According to chapter 20, verse 15, this book records not deeds, but names, the names of God's people. It's a register of the citizens of the heavenly city. They alone escape the fiery fate at the end of verse 15. There's only one way to walk free from the heavenly courtroom, and that is to have your name in the book of life. In the book of life. Other verses in Revelation tell us how to get our name into it. Chapter 1 says, To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Chapter 7, they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. This book isn't a who's who of the rich and famous. It's a record of all those who have put their trust in Jesus and his death for their forgiveness of sin. It's not clear from this passage whether or not these people also have their deeds recorded in the other books. If so, the books may contain plenty of good deeds, which are the fruit of a living faith that would be a public confirmation on the last day of our faith in Jesus. So it'd be like your aim to please God since you've been converted. Perhaps in those books, there would be no record of any of our wrongdoing since Christ has paid for it all. Or maybe it would be recorded to show the wonder of God's grace to you and to me and to us. What we do know for certain is that there is now no condemnation for those of you who are in Christ Jesus. Romans chapter 8 verse 1 says there's no condemnation for you. So whatever this book of life is, contrasted with this book of deeds, there's no condemnation for you, believer, because you're in Christ Jesus and you're covered by his atoning sacrifice. Isn't that a beautiful thing? Is your name listed in the book of life? In the end, wherever else your name appears is of very little consequence. Your name may end up in newspapers. It may be on the side of a company building. It may be in the town, in the history books. It may be in a town memoir, but none of this matters if it's not found in the book of life on the last day. By contrast, your name may never make any impact in this world. It may be quickly forgotten once you're gone. So those of us that are seeking power, seeking approval, you need to hear that. Your name may not make impact, and if so, it'll be quickly forgotten once you're gone. I want you to tell me who your great-great-great-grandpa is. Good luck. I bet five of you could name his name. The reality is it'll quickly be forgotten by so many. If your name is written in the book of life, that's what matters. It's the cause for thanksgiving and joy. And Jesus said to his disciples in Luke, Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So it really matters that our names are written when we consider the sentence with which the trial concludes in Revelation 20. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, and the lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. There's no long, drawn-out debate. There's no court of appeal, no second chance. The sentence of the court is final and swiftly executed. If anyone's name is not found in the book of life, they are thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is mentioned three times in verses 14 and 15 of Revelation 20. For emphasis, it's also referred to as the second death. So the Bible speaks of these two deaths. Now, 
I want you to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, our focus text for today. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. It says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And it says there, the judgment seat of Christ, and the judgment seat was common in the Corinthian world. It's the tribunal bench in the Roman courtroom where the governor sat while rendering judicial verdicts. And so remains of such a judgment seat, a bema, exist in the Corinthian forum today. And it says here in verse 10, In the coming age, Christ will judge as God the Father's representative, ruling the kingdom the Father has given him. And so this passage of Scripture here says in verse 10, talking about that judgment seat, that bema, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So you, you have been summoned. You will not be given a failure to appear punishment. You will appear. You've been summoned. The Creator will ensure it so. And before the judgment seat of Christ, you will stand. And each one will then receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, I've talked about the two books, and I've spoken about the atoning blood of Christ and about how there's no condemnation in sin. So let me speak about deeds done in this life for the Christian. I wrote this out this week because I knew at this juncture in the sermon I would be mentally fatigued and would get it wrong. So listen to what I wrote here for you today to consume. Whether at home or away, we make it our aim to please the Lord. Verse 9. We are not to put our behavioral change off until we get to heaven as Christians. We are not to put it off. Our ethics need to match up now. A mentality, there is a mentality type among us that thinks, I won't worry too much about pleasing God now because I'll save that for the glorification in heaven. But I think we ought not put so much distance between our sanctification and our glorification. As much as it is up to us, press the limits of your sanctification Know the joy of growing in grace and knowledge of Jesus. Just as our aim in heaven will be to please Him, so our aim on earth right now is to please Him just the same. So when we pray the Lord's Prayer and we say, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth now as it is in heaven, when we pray that, we want to be a part of that coming reality. This is the nature of the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We don't want any more separation between our attitudes and actions here than what we will have in heaven. We want so little daylight between the two that one could be mistaken for the other. We want to experience his presence here by faith as we will soon experience his presence by sight. So this is the point of aiming to please the Lord right now. This is the point. It's for your joy. It's for His glory. It's for your witness to the watching world. Imagine you just received your summons in the mail. You're scheduled for jury duty. Or you've been subpoenaed as a witness to a a trial. Even here and now, you know you must comply. How much more will you have to comply before the King of the universe? I mean, what, what excuse will keep you from appearing? Answer, none. So today is about thinking about death. Number one, thinking rightly about death. Number two, it's about living your life in light of that death. And number three, it's about 
having confidence for eternal life with Christ after your first death and your only death because you won't face the second death, the lake of fire. I want you to have confidence because this text says in verse 1 that God is the architect. It says in verse 5 that God is the giver of eternal life. And it says in verse 10 that God is the judge of who enters into his eternal life, eternal rest with the Lord. And that is what, what I want for you. It's what I want for you. I, w- I want you to aim rightly. I want it for you. Tim Keller wrote in his little book, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, as follows. And this is what he, uh, what he says. He says that Paul, the Apostle Paul is saying in Christianity that the verdict is what leads to the performance. Not the performance is what leads to the verdict. In Christianity, the moment we believe, God says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And Romans 8 1 says, therefore, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In Christianity, the moment you believe, God imputes Christ's perfect performance to you as if it were your own and adopts you into his family. In other words, God can say to us, just as he once said to Christ, you're my beloved son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. You see, the verdict is already in. Now, I perform on the basis of the verdict. I perform on the basis of the verdict. It's the verdict that's in that causes me to perform. It's because he loves me and he accepts me. I, accepts me. I don't have to do things just to build up my resume. I don't have to be trying to uh, just, just to please people or just to amass power to have some kind of a, a resume for the day of the Lord. No, no, no. I don't have to do things just to make myself look good. I can do things for the joy of doing them. I can help people to help people, not so I can feel better about myself, not so I can fill up my emptiness, but because the verdict is already in. Don't you see? Your assurance of eternal life, that verdict being in, that drives your performance. And Keller writes so well about it in the freedom of self-forgetfulness. So some final things here, and then we'll close. Um, Aiming to please the Lord. Make it your ambition to please the Lord because of what he's done for you. And test your heart motivations and make decisions based on pleasing the Lord instead of aiming simply to please yourself or to please people, which is in some derivative way to please yourself. And seek to serve the Lord because of his assurance for eternal life for you. It's, it's never are we, an old military saying, never are you to sacrifice accuracy for speed. Don't do the ready, fire, aim thing with death. I'm asking you this morning not to ready, fire, aim, but to stare down the annals of your relatively short life and say, I'm going to die, but only once because Christ died that I could live with him. Put your faith in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I'm humbled to the point of tears when I think about the fact that, that you took on my punishment at Calvary. You put it on your son, rather. And Jesus, you took my punishment so I wouldn't have to fear that massive great white throne judgment that's coming. I want to say believe it's coming by faith, but to believe that I'm already declared righteous because of you is incredibly free. Help me to experience the freedom of self-forgetfulness because of that. And help these people grow in gospel humility, each and every one of them, that they can just experience the joy of the verdict already being rendered for us. God, 
I pray for the unbelievers estate in this room. I pray for them that I just pray they would be ready that something about the presentation of the gospel today would stir them to repent of their sin and believe in you so that they don't have to fear dying twice because they've been born twice. Help us to prepare for death in this life as we aim to please you, O Lord. Give us confidence, shape our motivational structure as we think not morbidly as the pagans do about death, but joyously about the fact that to be absent from this body is to be present with you. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Let's just please come to receive our prayer requests.